You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of wrongful convictions and the serial murders at 10 Rillington Place. In the 1940s in London, in the wake of the Second World War, the city was changing. Much of it had been destroyed during the Blitz bombings, and rationing was still in place. The state welfare system was still in development, and there were huge shortages in housing. There was a lot of upheaval as men returned from the Western Front, and people tried to carry on with their lives. And so it was in this context that in March of 1948, Timothy and Beryl Evans, a newly wedded couple, moved into their first home together. They were expecting their first baby, and needed more space than they had while they shared with a number of Beryl's family members. And so, happily, they took up residence on the top floor of number 10 Rillington Place in Notting Hill, London. The house itself was rickety, a three-story end of terrace that was thrown up during a building boom in the 1870s. Rather than it being inhabited by a family, it lay empty for a number of years before being let out in floors. It was basically a tenement. The bottom two floors had three rooms, with the top floor having only two. There was a small garden in the back which also contained a wash house, When the Evanses moved in, both of these were used exclusively by the ground floor tenants, the Christies. There was also a separate room outside which contained a toilet that was shared between the tenants. So the young couple moved their few belongings to the top floor flat of 10 Rillington Place and struck out on their own. Timothy was born in South Wales on the 20th of November, 1924. He was the second of two children in the family, but just before his birth, his father left them. His mother remarried, and so he was eventually brought up by a stepfather, and also had two half-siblings. Tim was an average child, but he missed a lot of school due to illness, and was prone to angry outbursts. He had trouble reading and writing. That said, he was a popular young man, He got on well with all of his schoolmates, such as they were, and enjoyed playing football and boxing. Tim was a jokester, and fun to be around. Between the ages of 12 and 14, he moved back and forth between his mother and stepfather's home in London, and his grandmother's house, back in Wales. But by 1939, he was back in London more permanently, and worked cleaning cars, and as a driver in a number of jobs. The thing people seemed to most remember was that Tim lied. He told tall tales, entirely unbelievable, about all sorts of things. Tim, to put it bluntly, was full of shit. He got into trouble for petty theft, too, but he was fun to be around and had a good sense of humour. 
Generally, though, he was unremarkable, a regular lad who liked going to the pub and the races and the cinema and telling his stories. He met Beryl Thorley in January of 1947, and they started going out together to the cinema and to dance halls. Again, Beryl had a fairly normal, if unsettled, childhood, and though she was well-liked, she was noted as having a harsh temper. Beryl and her family was from the Notting Hill area, and she'd lived in a number of houses there with her parents and two siblings. She was the eldest. Her mother died the year she met Tim, though, and after that, the family scattered about West London. Shortly after her mother's death, the young couple were married in September of 1947 at the registry office in Kensington. When the two discovered that they were expecting, they decided to move out on their own. They were known as a nice couple, but both were young, and despite their pleasant natures, they fought a lot. The walls in their new home were thin, and their neighbours often heard shouting. A lot of the trouble was over money. Neither were reported as being very good at running a household. They'd rented furniture and were behind with their payments for that, and behind with their rent. Still, after the birth of their daughter Geraldine in October of 1948, they went to the cinema together and out for a drink on occasion. Beryl went back to work quickly, but despite the two incomes, they still had money trouble and many fights. Timothy's mother also complained that Beryl neglected her duties in the house. She didn't clean up or do the washing or even cook meals. According to author Jonathan Oates, Beryl once bragged about a man she worked with who'd taken a fancy to her and told Tim all about their flirtation. For that, Tim slapped her across the face. She was in work at the time, and the blowout resulted in Beryl losing her job. Things could get heated between them, and Beryl once threw a jar at her husband's head in the midst of a fight. One of their biggest rows happened after one of Beryl's friends, Lucy, stayed with them for a short while in August of 1949. At the end of the month, Tim ended up having sex with Lucy on the kitchen floor while Beryl was asleep in the next room. There was a huge fight, and the police were called to the top floor flat. After this, there was talk of Tim leaving Beryl for Lucy, but nothing ever came of it, and a few weeks later Beryl discovered that she was pregnant yet again. Understandably, she was not happy with the situation. The couple were barely managing financially. They already had a 13-month-old. They lived in two rooms at the top of two flights of stairs. They both doted on their little girl, but they couldn't cope with another child. Beryl decided that she'd try and induce a miscarriage. And so, at first, she said nothing to her husband. But Tim found the syringes she'd used to try and end the pregnancy, as well as pills she'd gotten from another woman who assured her that they'd do the trick, but they didn't. Beryl was still pregnant, still miserable, but now had an angry husband to deal with. He didn't want her to be rid of the baby. According to Oates, Tim said to her, what difference would another one make? But Beryl was determined. And according to author Ludovic Kennedy, in his book Ten Rillington Place, pretty much everyone knew about her predicament her mother-in-law, the Christie's downstairs, the woman in number eight. She'd been warned by a number of people older and wiser 
that she was going to make herself ill if she kept carrying on like this, but Beryl ignored them. She knew that she couldn't have another child. By that time, it was early in November, and the landlord had ordered some repairs to be made to the rickety old house on Rillington Place. Builders arrived to do a number of jobs, including replacing the roofs of the wash house out back and replacing floor timbers in the hall and front room of the ground floor. Mr. Kitchener, who lived on the first floor, was in hospital at that time, and Mr. Christie was ill too. He'd been ordered to keep himself warm and still by his doctor. On the 8th of November, Beryl was seen coming and going with her little girl, Geraldine. A friend called by for her, but the young woman didn't open the door. And that afternoon, Beryl's grandmother was expecting her and little Geraldine for tea at half four, no more than a ten-minute walk from her flat. But Beryl never turned up. The next day, Tim told his mother, who usually babysat on Wednesdays while the young couple went out, that Beryl had taken Geraldine and gone to visit her father in Brighton for a week or two. A few days later, Tim quit his job, telling his boss that he was off to Bristol, following his wife and his daughter, who'd already gone out there. Then, he sold the furniture from the flat, the furniture that he still owed money on. On the 14th of November, with the last of their belongings sold off and the flat near empty, and still no sign of Beryl or Geraldine, Tim packed a suitcase and took a train from Paddington back to Wales. He arrived at his aunt and uncle's house, Cornelius and Violet Lynch, and told them that he and his boss had been in Cardiff on business and their car had broken down. Tim asked if he could stay a few days, and the Lynches agreed. Tim told them the story that Beryl and Geraldine were in Brighton and spent a few days with them, going to the pub with his uncle and meeting up with his childhood friends. Within a few days of his arrival, though, Tim returned to London for a brief time, telling his aunt and uncle that he had seen Beryl and the baby while there. Later, there would be different accounts of what happened on that visit back to Rillington Place. In the meantime, letters went back and forth between the extended family. The company that Tim had got their furniture from went looking for payment from his mother, who had acted as their guarantor and she wrote to her family back in Wales complaining of her son's behaviour and telling them that they were on their own if they wanted to put up with him. Mrs Lynch showed the letter to Tim and then read it to him. Tim looked shocked and startled and said he didn't know what his mother was on about and that what she'd said wasn't true. But later that day, Tim went to a local police station and announced, quote, I want to give myself up. I have disposed of my wife. End quote. Once the officer confirmed that Tim knew what he was saying, he took down what would be the first of Tim's statements about what had happened. Initially, Tim said that he and his wife had gotten some pills in the process of trying to procure an abortion, but Beryl had died after taking the pills, and he had panicked and put her body down the manhole outside their lodgings in Rillington Place. Evans then told them that he had left his infant daughter with a Mr. John Reginald Christie, the man who lived on the ground floor of the same house, who said he would arrange for her to be taken care of. Authorities in London were contacted, and after three men struggled with the cover of the drain in the rundown street, it was opened. 
but Beryl's body wasn't there. Police in Wales went to Tim Evans once more. This time, he told a different story. Evans said that he had lied in the first place to protect his neighbour, Mr Christie. The older man had approached Tim, telling him that he knew about Beryl's attempt to induce a miscarriage, and said he'd had medical training and could take care of it for them. He'd even scolded Tim, saying that if they'd approached him earlier, he could have performed the abortion with very little risk. As it turned out, Beryl had already spoken to Reg and insisted to her husband that she trusted him and would go through with the procedure, despite Tim's protests. The date for the procedure was set for Tuesday morning, the 8th of November. That morning, Tim had left for work as normal and had delivered a message to Reg Christie from his wife on his way out to say that she was ready to go ahead with it. When he got home from work, though, Reg met him at the stairs and told Tim that the abortion hadn't worked. Tim went to their bedroom and he saw his wife lying on the bed, dead. She had blood around her mouth. Reg told him that it wasn't his fault that things had gone wrong, that Beryl had had a bad infection and would have died from that anyway. And then Reg told him that he'd take care of getting rid of Beryl's body and sorting out someone to look after Geraldine. Reg made it clear that if they didn't do it this way, both of them would get into trouble with the police, and that authorities would think Tim had killed his wife. Christy said the baby would go and stay with a lovely couple in East Acton, and told Tim to sell all of his things and get out of London. According to Evans, that's when he'd made up the story about Beryl and the baby going on holidays. Police in London were informed of this new story and went about searching the entire property at Tenrillington Place, every flat and even the garden, but nothing was found. The Christies were brought separately to Notting Hill Station to be questioned. They had little to add, excepting that Evans had told them that his wife had gone on holiday and that they'd heard furniture being moved on the night of the 8th upstairs. On the 2nd of December, in a second search, police finally made their way out to the wash house in the back garden and found Beryl. Her body had been wrapped in a tablecloth and hidden behind wooden planks underneath a sink. Alongside her was the body of little Geraldine. There was a man's necktie still wrapped around the baby's neck. Photographs were taken of the bodies and then post-mortem examinations concluded that both Beryl and baby Geraldine had died by strangulation. It wasn't clear what had been used to kill Beryl, though she had prominent marks on her neck, indicating a ligature had been used. The pathologist, Dr. Tear, also found that Beryl had other marks on her head and body, indicating that a struggle of some sort had occurred. It was confirmed that Beryl had been pregnant, about four months along when she died, and that there had been no damage to the fetus, and no signs that there had been attempts to end the pregnancy. With the discovery of the bodies, Tim Evans was brought from Wales to London for further questioning. When he arrived in Notting Hill Station, late on the night of the 2nd of December, Tim was informed that the bodies of his wife and child had been found at their lodgings. 
he was shown the clothing that the two had been wearing, in two little piles, and on top of Geraldine's sat the tie that had been around her neck. It was put to him by police that he was responsible for their deaths, and Tim told the officers that he was. Again, Evans was cautioned, and he made a further statement, saying that he'd killed his wife because she was running up debts, and that he'd killed his daughter two days later on the 10th, and had strangled the baby with a tie. He sat down then and outlined a full statement of what had happened, and how he'd fled after the deaths. The police took it down as he spoke, as Evans was unable to write it out himself, and he signed the bottom, confirming confirming that this was his true statement of the events of three weeks before. When his mother was finally allowed to visit him, though, two days later, he said that he hadn't killed either his wife or child, and once again placed blame on his downstairs neighbour, Mr. Christie. He also had something to say regarding the confessions that he had signed for the police themselves. Mr. Baker, a reporter for the Daily Mail, took notes of the conversation, which are reproduced by the stationery office's publication of Daniel Braben's report into the affair. According to this 1966 publication, Mr. Baker wrote, quote, Cops kept him up all night trying to get him to confess to baby murder. Finally, one of them threw baby's dress in his face. I signed it because I didn't care if I lived or died when I knew my baby was dead. End quote. However, later, when discussing his case with his solicitor, Tim Evans had no complaints about the behaviour or methods of the police. The workmen who had been in the house the week that Mrs. Evans and her daughter were murdered were also questioned by police. They said that they had been plastering the ceiling in the wash house, and that hadn't been finished until the morning of Wednesday the 9th. They'd been in and out of the wash house until they finished their work on the 11th, but there was no agreement on whether they would have noticed a body hidden behind pieces of wood beneath the sink. Initially, they said that they had cleaned out the wash house thoroughly when the job was finished, and that they would have noticed anything out of place there. But they were asked again, after it was clear that their statements didn't line up with Evans's, that he had put his wife's body in the wash house after killing her on the 8th, and this time they agreed that it might be possible that they'd missed something hidden under the sink behind the wood. These statements would be vital for constructing a timeline of what happened to Beryl and the baby later, but neither version of the statements made their way into evidence at trial. On Thursday the 15th of December, Evans made his first appearance at the magistrate's court, and was told that he would stand trial for murder. The trial itself began on the 11th of January 1950. Evans pleaded not guilty to the murder of his daughter. It was often the case at this time that, where there were multiple charges of murder, the defendant would only answer one, leaving the others on file. It had the effect that if the Crown lost their case, there was another chance at a second trial. The charge relating to his wife was not put to him so that he would not be able to rely on a defence of provocation. But Mr Justice Lewis allowed the facts relating to Beryl's murder to be relied upon by the prosecution, as the two cases were so obviously connected. The Crown, represented by Mr Christmas Humphreys, Queen's Counsel, began by outlining the case against Tim Evans, including the four statements made by him in custody. 
three of which were confessions of guilt, and two of which described how he had murdered his child in particular. The main witness for the prosecution was Mr. Evans's downstairs neighbor, Reg Christie, who outlined his own background, including that he had served in the First War and was with the police reserve during World War II. Christie outlined his various medical conditions, including severe back pain, which he was being treated for both at that time in January 1950 and also back in November of the previous year. The contents of Evans's statements relating to him were put to Christie while he was on the stand, and Christie told the court that he knew nothing of a young childless couple in Acton who he was to give Geraldine to, like one of Evans's confessions stated. He also identified the tie found with the baby as one that might belong to Tim. It certainly wasn't his. He said he had no more medical training than first aid, and had never said that he was able to perform abortions. His back was too bad to have done anything like moving Beryl's body downstairs and into Mr. Kitchener's empty flat, or further, out into the wash house. Evans's defence barrister, Mr. Malcolm Morris, in an attempt to give weight to his client's claim that it had been this witness who had in fact murdered his wife and baby, went through Mr. Christie's criminal past. Arrests for stolen postal orders in 1921, another for false pretenses in 1923, then theft in 1924, an assault in 1929, and finally, the theft of a car in 1933. All of these were convictions which had come with custodial sentences. The implication was that this balding, respectable-looking middle-aged man had a darker side that he was hiding, one which was capable of base criminal activity, perhaps even murder. But while Mr. Christie acknowledged that he had a criminal past, he outright denied that he had anything to do whatsoever with providing abortions or the terrible deaths of Beryl and Geraldine Evans. When she took the stand, Ethel Christie backed this up, stating that her husband had only basic first aid training and no medical knowledge of note. Both of the Christies recalled the loud noises they'd heard from upstairs on the 8th, something that sounded to them like furniture being moved about. Then Mrs. Lynch, Evans's aunt, described his stay with her and her husband, and the tales he had told about Beryl being away on holiday and him being in Wales for work. Each of Evans's confessions was read for the court. That was the end of the Crown's case, and the defence called only one witness, Evans himself. Mr. Morris for the defence asked his client about the various statements that he had made to the police. Tim said that the only one that was true was the second one, the one where he had said his neighbour, Mr. Christie, had killed his wife. He said after Beryl had died, he'd taken care of Geraldine until Mr. Christie said he'd arranged for her care. Then he sold his furniture and left, again on Mr. Christie's advice. Tim told the court he hadn't known his daughter was dead until he was told about it in the police station in Notting Hill. But on cross-examination, Mr. Humphreys for the Crown went through each statement Evans had made, pointing out every time Evans now admitted he lied. How were the jury supposed to believe anything that he said? The closing speeches were relatively short, 
Mr. Humphreys pointing out that Evans had confessed, and it made absolutely no sense that Reg Christie had killed Beryl. There was simply no reason for it. Mr. Morris, for the defence, reiterated to the jury that they must be absolutely satisfied with the prosecution's case to find his client guilty. He said it was difficult to imagine that a man of limited intelligence, such as his client, would be able to come up with stories about Mr. Christie like he had, and that Christie's character was questionable at best. Friday the 13th of January 1950 saw the instructions to the jury from Mr. Justice Lewis. He reminded the jury that they were deciding the case only in relation to the murder of Geraldine Evans, and went through the facts of the case, commenting on the characters of both Mr. Evans and Mr. Christie, asking the jury to decide who they thought the more reliable witness. Unsurprisingly, Evans was found guilty 40 minutes after the jury retired. He was sentenced to death. His appeals failed, and so on March 9, 1950, Tim Evans was hanged at Pentonville Prison by Albert Pierpoint. Meanwhile, back in Rillington Place, things were changing. The house was empty except for the Christies, and the landlord wanted to sell. In April of 1950, he did, and then in August 1950, it was sold on again to a Mr. Charles Brown, a man of West Indian descent. The rooms on the upper floors were now let out separately. The Christies remained on the ground floor with their three rooms as they were rent protected, but the house was becoming overcrowded, and what was worse from the Christies' perspective was that many of the new tenants were from the West Indies themselves. Reg and Ethel complained to the council and wanted to be rehoused. The complaints chiefly centred around the ethnicity of their new neighbours. There were a number of incidents where Ethel alleged she'd been assaulted and one complaint of assault from Christie himself. Fines were imposed on the other tenants in those cases. Yet otherwise the Christies continued on, much the same as before the Evanses had come into their lives. Reg worked a number of jobs in between bouts of ill health. His back still bothered him, and he was of a nervous disposition. He once even described having a breakdown-type episode. Ethel also took medicine for her nerves, and saw the same doctor as her husband periodically. Despite their health problems and their dislike of their new neighbours, there was nothing particularly notable about the older couple who lived on the ground floor of 10 Rillington Place. In fact, Reg Christie's life had been fairly unremarkable, excluding his brushes with the law. In his book John Christie of Rillington Place, Jonathan Oates outlines Christie's early days. He was from a working-class background, though his father was a successful artisan. Because of this, the family's income was relatively low, but they had a financial stability that allowed for a comfortable life. John Reginald Halliday Christie, known to most as Reg, was good at school, quite intelligent, and took parts in sports as well as volunteering with the St. John's Ambulance and the Scouts. He was possibly taking after his stern father in those interests, or perhaps trying to gain his favour and respect. But all those activities and social engagement masked a shy and insular young man. Christie seemed to find it difficult to really connect with others on an individual basis. He had no close friends and seemed to be especially intimidated by girls. 
He was teased for his lack of success on that front by his male peers. It seemed that this intimidation and teasing resulted in Christie's first sexual experience being with a sex worker. And in fact, he would have contact with sex workers for the rest of his life. In September of 1916, at 17 years of age, Christie signed up to serve Britain in the war, not wanting to wait to be called up. He was mobilised six months later, just after his 18th birthday. By April 1918, he was sent to Flanders in the wake of the German offensive on the Western Front. Christie was injured after an explosion and was exposed to mustard gas. He ended up in a hospital in Calais. Later, he would claim that this resulted in blindness and an inability to talk. The muteness, he said, lasted for three and a half years. Oates revealed, however, that his military record showed only a temporary loss of voice. He'd not been blind at all, and had basically suffered from a prolonged sore throat. This is perhaps the first concrete example of Christie embellishing the truth about himself, which would be a feature of his later life. Not only to puff himself up and seem more impressive to people, but also to give himself a level of authority he was perhaps not entitled to, and the trust that often went with that in the mid-20th century. By October of 1919, Reg was discharged from the army and moved back to Halifax, where he received a disability pension to supplement his income for a number of months after that. Soon he met and married Ethel Simpson. She was an accomplished typist and came from a background similar to Christie's, although her father had died when she was young. It wasn't long before the marriage became troubled. Christie's behaviour outside of the regimented life of the army took a turn towards criminality and would eventually lead to the breakdown of his and Ethel's relationship. On the 5th of April 1921, while still in receipt of a modest stipend for disability during the war, Christie appeared at Halifax Magistrates Court for stealing two postal orders. At this time, Christie had most recently been employed as a postman. The charges came about when it was noticed by Christie's superiors that letters were going missing from the Halifax Post Office, and they were letters that Christie should have delivered on his route. He was searched and four postal orders were found. Yet more were found at his house, along with cheques and stamps. There were hundreds of pounds worth, and yet for some reason Christie hadn't cashed terribly many of them. Most were recovered with no loss. Reg pled guilty to the charges and was sentenced to a total of three months' imprisonment for all of them. Evidence of his good character was heard, and no doubt that played a role in mitigating his sentence. The next year, he was brought up on charges relating to a non-payment of a bill at a B&B, but was given probation of a year for this. And so, in 1923, Christie left Halifax for reasons unknown, though he blamed Ethel, saying she had had an affair with her employer. Christie moved to London and worked a number of jobs for short periods, including a stint at the Royal Air Force, the RAF. He also got into more trouble for theft, both of money and of a child's bike. He was back up in court for those charges, and that time he was given a sentence of nine months hard labour. Eventually, Christie took up with another woman, Maud Cole. 
She was married, but she didn't live with her husband. She and Christy lived together in a flat in Battersea. Initially, Christy had had a job as a driver when they first took up together, but he lost that position. Maud began to get irritated with his lack of contribution to the household, and they fought. On the final occasion, Christy hit Maud across the head with a cricket bat. Their upstairs neighbour intervened, but by the time police got to the flat to help, Reg had left through the window. He was picked up later in Victoria and sentenced to six months' hard labour. He told the court that he had been, quote-unquote, testing the bat and accidentally swung it at Mrs. Cole's head. But the court didn't believe this. At the end of 1930, Christie was out of prison again and had a string of driving jobs. But in 1933, he stole a car from his employer. He and the car were missing for a full day before police found him and arrested him. Christie gave them a story about how the car was a friend's and he was just driving it until the other man found lodgings. He pleaded guilty to all of the charges relating to the theft in the magistrate's court the following day and was sent to do another three months of hard labour. This time, though, while doing his time, Reg had a visitor in prison. Ethel had tracked him down and came to see him, to tell him that they either needed to get a divorce or resume their marriage. And so, when his sentence was up again, the two moved in together once more and set up their home in Notting Hill. This marked an end to Reg Christie's unsettled nomadic existence and to the petty crimes that had gotten him into trouble. In 1937, the couple moved to 10 Rillington Place, where they occupied the bottom three rooms of the dingy house. They were living there when war broke out once more, and so in September of 1939, in need of work and to avoid another stint of service in the British Army, Christie joined the wartime police reserve. His background wasn't checked. He had five convictions, each of which should have disallowed him from policing his neighbourhood, but he'd served during the last war and in the RAF, and that gave him good standing. After all, it was wartime, there weren't many men to go around, and so they'd take who they could get without looking too closely at their pasts. There were a few notable aspects to Christie's time in the reserves, He seemed to enjoy the authority that this new position gave him and the respect he garnered as a policeman and war veteran. Again, he wasn't beyond embellishing things. He'd done some first aid training and put it about that he had actually begun training as a doctor before the first war broke out. He liked to throw his weight around and being with the reserve police meant that his feeling of superiority over others in his borough and from his background were now justified by his position. It seems clear that Christie was concerned with how he was viewed in his community and how much he was respected, and what he could parlay for himself from that respect. For example, it was not unusual for Christie to turn a blind eye to prostitutes who worked on his beat, so long as they repaid this favour with sex with him. But this kind of behaviour was certainly not what you'd expect of him from appearances a soft-spoken, tidy, bespectacled man who had served his country and protected his city. And that was certainly how he had appeared during the trial of Timothy Evans, and to his neighbours in its aftermath. 
he and Ethel were known and thought well of in the area, even if they did keep to themselves a bit. The pair continued on as normal after the trial, despite the horrors that had happened in the upstairs room of their house and what had been found in their wash house. Despite his ill health in the early 50s, Reg Christie continued with his hobbies, which, at the time, consisted mainly of photography and speaking to young women in cafes and pubs. He liked to take their pictures, too. Sometimes he'd bring them home with him, and one or two even met Ethel. But from mid-December 1952, Ethel was no longer around the house in Rillington Place. Christie told people his wife had gone away on holiday. On the 12th of that month, she dropped off her laundry as usual, and at her usual place. She went once every two weeks, but she never appeared to collect it. Things went quiet on the ground floor of the house. Christie said that he and Ethel were moving, that she'd gone on ahead and was taking holidays with her family. Christie spent Christmas that year on his own. But there was no reason to doubt what he'd told his neighbours. Christie seemed, for all intents and purposes, to be preparing for a move, and so life carried on as normal, everyone making do with what they had and carrying on regardless. On the 20th of March, 1953, a Mrs. Mary Margaret Riley moved into Rillington Place. She and her family were to occupy the rooms formerly used by the Christies. Reg told her that he had 16 years left on his lease and that he was moving to Birmingham, where he'd gotten a job. Ethel had gone up before him while he sorted out the house. Mrs. Riley handed over a deposit and extra money for some fittings Christie said he would leave behind. And then Christie was gone. But the next day, the landlord and owner of the property, Mr. Brown, turned up. Christie wasn't allowed to sublet and Mrs. Riley and her children were put out. A new tenant, one approved by the landlord, a Mr. Beresford Brown, was given the downstairs rooms a few days later. All the rubbish left behind by Christie was gathered up and thrown into the garden, and the new tenant went about trying to make the place his home. The first thing on the agenda was to put up a shelf for the wireless. Beresford Brown knocked on part of the wall in the kitchen, and discovered that it was not in fact a solid wall, just wallpapering to make an alcove flush with the rest of the room. In the alcove were three bodies. The police were called. After the shocking discovery of three bodies crammed into an alcove, loose floorboards were noticed in the living room. They'd found Ethel. She'd been wrapped up and placed under the floor in the front room. In the following days, a more thorough search of the property at 10 Rillington Place was conducted. During that search, more bones were found in the garden, the bodies of two other women who had died in the house. Eventually, each was identified. Another strange discovery was also made. It was a small tin with a collection of four samples of pubic hair. At the time, medical professionals weren't sure that they all matched the women buried in and around the house. The search was now on for a mild-mannered, middle-aged gentleman, clean-shaven and dressed nicely, wearing a trilby hat over his balding head. The newspapers picked up the story almost immediately, with headlines screaming with details of the House of Horrors discovered in North Kensington. 
Meanwhile, police let it be known in the cafes and pubs in the area that Mr. Christie was now a wanted man, and sightings of him in the city began pouring in. In fact, Christie had only gone five miles away to a hostel for men on King's Cross Road, but it was clear across the city and well outside the area that Christie would have considered his home territory. He paid for a bed there on the 20th of March for a full week, but left early once news of his crimes made the news. He walked around aimlessly after that, until on the 31st of March, he was approached by a police constable near Putney Bridge. He was, by that time, scruffy and unkempt looking, and gave the officer a false name, but he was recognised and brought to the nearest police station. He cried in the station and thanked police for treating him kindly. Then he was cautioned and confessed immediately to the murders. He said the murder of his wife was a mercy killing and that he'd been provoked in the other cases. According to Christie, he had woken on the 14th of December 1952 to his wife struggling to breathe in the bed next to him. He tried to help her, but he said it became clear that it was too late to do anything about her inability to breathe, and so he took a stocking and wrapped it around her neck. After she had stopped breathing altogether and had finally passed away, Christie had noticed that a number of the sedatives that he took for his nerves were missing from their container. He surmised that Ethel had taken them, unable to cope any longer with their living situation. Christie said that he left Ethel in the bed for a number of days before deciding that he needed to move her. He lifted the floorboards from the front room of number 10 and put Ethel down there. He wasn't working at the time and told people that he'd gotten a job up north and that's where Ethel had gone or that she was on holiday visiting her family. Christie then sold his furniture and Ethel's jewellery. Ethel was never seen again by her neighbours. Christie carried on as before, meeting young girls in cafes and pubs, and he had to sell more and more of his things to keep this up. He was buying company in the absence of his wife, and it was expensive. It would be the women who were unfortunate enough to think that they would be relatively safe in the company of this mild-mannered, kindly older man that would lose their lives to him at 10 Rillington Place. The first two women to have died at the house at the hands of Christie were the last identified. They were the ones who had been buried in the meagre back garden and were nothing more than disarticulated bones by the time police excavated them from their makeshift resting places. Ruth First was born on the 2nd of August 1922 in Austria. Eventually, she left her home country during the First World War due to her Jewish heritage. She ended up living in England. She studied nursing but worked in hotels until she was, like many other refugees to Britain at the time, sent to the internment camp on the Isle of Man. After her release from there, she moved to London and met a man from Cyprus with whom she had a child. The little girl was sent to a residential school and then adopted. Ruth moved around a lot. She had 14 addresses in four years and was described variously by people she came into contact with as bright or sullen, promiscuous or morose. 
Most likely, she was a traumatized young girl on her own in a strange country, with no support whatsoever. In late August 1943, Ruth called to the Christie home. The only account of what happened comes, of course, from Christie. It seems the two met while Christie was carrying out police work, and they started to talk. There's no way to confirm whether Ruth made part of her living through sex work, but on that day in August, she had called to the house to collect money, and had ended up in the Christie's bedroom. Reg strangled her with a rope while they had sex. He then wrapped her body in her coat and hid her under the floorboards of the living room, where she stayed until the next night. Then, Reg dug a small trench in the garden and buried Ruth there. Ruth's landlady reported the girl missing when she failed to pay her rent, and it was clear she hadn't been back to her rooms. But no one ever looked for her. It was wartime. Her family was in another country, and she was foreign. She simply disappeared. She was one of many. By the end of that year, Christie left his employment with the reserve forces and took up a job as a driver yet again. That's where he met Muriel Edie. She was a young woman born in October 1912. Her mother had died when she was young and her father was with the Merchant Navy, so she was raised in schools and by her aunts. Her life was quite strict until she was in her early 20s and she set out on her own. Christie introduced Muriel to another man in the company, and the couple, along with the Christies, would spend time together, having tea in the Christie's flat or going to the cinema. In October of 1944, Christie took time off work, saying he was ill. Then he told Muriel that he could help her with her own illness. She suffered from catarrh. Reg told her that he had some medical expertise, having trained as a doctor before the war. He could help relieve her discomfort. And so, on Saturday the 7th of October, Muriel called to his house after having tea with one of her aunts. Ethel was away for the day. Christie prepared a mixture and a jar for her to inhale in the kitchen, which, unbeknownst to the young woman, also included coal gas from the cooker, basically carbon monoxide gas. Once Muriel was knocked out, Christy raped her, strangled her, and then stored her body in the wash house out back before burying her in the garden near to Ruth. When Muriel didn't turn up at work the next week, it was thought initially that she was ill. There were a number of ideas where she'd got to. Perhaps she'd become pregnant and run off, or she'd been at a dance hall that had been bombed and died. Once again, the chaos of wartime and the transience of her existence meant that no one was really looking for her when she fell off the face of the planet and into Christie's back garden. That accounted for the women's bodies found in the garden of 10 Rillington Place, but of course there were three more women to be identified having been murdered and hidden in the back room of the house behind a makeshift false wall. These women were all much easier to identify though. There was nearly 10 years between their murders and the other bodies found outside. They'd all disappeared quite recently. The first was the body of Kathleen Maloney, who was originally from Plymouth. As a young child, she had been orphaned and sent to Catholic homes for children. Kathleen was described as wild by relatives who visited, in the sense that she was full of energy. 
but that didn't make her particularly liked in the convents, and she moved from one to another until she set off on her own. She drank a lot, and ended up in trouble with the police for prostitution, being drunk in public, foul language, and assaulting a policeman. Eventually, she found herself in London. Kathleen and a friend met Reg Christie in a pub. He seemed like a decent older man, very proper, and he asked them if the women would allow him to take nude pictures of them. According to Jonathan Oates' book, her friend recalled that, as Kathleen was homeless, she would go home with any man who would have her, so that she would have somewhere to spend the night. In January of 1953, Kathleen went home with Christie, after spending a few hours together drinking in a pub. She'd been there with friends when Christie had spotted her, and the group remembered that Kathleen had left quite willingly with the older man. After his arrest, Christie said that Kathleen came on to him, and that it was then he decided to kill her. After that, he'd hidden her body in the kitchen alcove, where it was later found. However, Kathleen had been gassed before being raped and then strangled. There were high levels of carbon monoxide in her system, as well as traces of semen on her body found during her post-mortem. Rita Nelson was next. She was from Belfast and also had an unsettled upbringing, which resulted in her being before the courts a number of times. She received sentences for theft and public drunkenness. Eventually, she left Belfast for London, looking for work and more consistent accommodation. She drifted from job to job, and in January of 1953, she was living in Hammersmith. By the middle of that month, though, she had failed to pay her rent, and no one had seen her since the 14th. Christie later said he met Rita at a café in Notting Hill Gate. According to accounts written by Christie and reproduced in Oates' book, Reg said that when he met Rita, she and a friend were looking for accommodation. He told them that he would soon be leaving his own flat, and that they should come by to have a look. Rita turned up at Rillington Place on her own. Christie said that Rita had had a drink with him, and began undressing, and that the two had had sex. It was after that that he had exposed her to gas, and then strangled her with a cord. Whatever happened exactly, Rita ended up in the small alcove in the kitchen, trussed up next to the body of Kathleen Maloney. Again, carbon monoxide and semen were found during her autopsy. Hectorina McLennan was, in many ways, unlike the other two women. She lived with her family in London, though they were actually from Scotland. It was a level of consistency and familial support that Christie's previous two victims in 1953 lacked. Hectorina didn't live according to societal norms, though. She was a bit of a free spirit, and had two children out of wedlock, apparently with a boyfriend who was in the Burmese Air Force. In November of 1952, her family returned to Scotland, bringing her two children with them. Hectorina chose to stay in the city. She had a number of jobs, but the most significant was one where she looked after the youngest child of Alexander Pomeroy Baker, with whom she had an affair. Two of her brothers last saw her on the 15th of February, 1953. It seems that without the support of her family, who had provided a base for her, she ended up moving from place to place, alone with her lover Baker, looking for somewhere permanent to stay. That's how they came across Christie. 
He had met Hectorina in a cafe, and she told him that she was looking for somewhere to stay. But when she called by to view the flat in Rillington Place, Hectorina had turned up with Baker. Christy was annoyed to see the man with her, but he showed them the flat and said that they could stay with him if they were in need of digs. Initially, they refused, but when they returned to the place that they had been staying, they were put out. And so, back to Christie's they went. They stayed there from the 3rd of March to the 5th. Eventually, Christie got Hectorina on her own. He gassed her, raped her, strangled her, and again shoved her in the alcove in the kitchen. When Baker finally came looking for Hectorina, Christie brought him into the flat, gave him some tea, and said he hadn't seen the young woman. He even helped Baker look for her. Once it became known what Christie had been up to, a proper-looking gentleman luring vulnerable women back to his flat on the promise of help and then murdering them, other women who had met him came forward. They recounted their near misses where Christie offered his medical expertise to treat minor ailments, or where he solicited them for sex, or where he'd offered his services as an abortionist or his flat as somewhere for the desperate to stay. The only unusual behaviours noted by his neighbours during this period, from December 1952 to March of 1953, were an unpleasant smell in the ground floor of the house, Christie's overuse of disinfectant and his habit of keeping doors locked. The door to the garden was always locked, and as Christie moved about the bottom floor of the house, he would lock doors behind him. By the 22nd of April 1954, Christie appeared in court charged with four murders, that of his wife, Kathleen Maloney, Rita Nelson and Hectorina McLennan. His trial was set to begin in the Old Bailey. Shockingly, on the 27th of April, Christie went on to confess to killing Beryl Evans, the woman who had been presumed murdered by her husband in Rillington Place in 1948. He made a lengthy statement about the circumstances leading to this killing on the 8th of June, insisting that what had happened had been a case of assisted suicide, rather than of cold-blooded murder. All told, John Reginald Halliday Christie had confessed to seven murders by the time he stood in the dock at the Old Bailey. His trial there began on the 22nd of June, 1953, before Mr Justice Finmore. The Crown was represented by Sir Lionel Held, the Attorney General at the time, and for the defence was Derek Curtis Bennett. Christie faced charges only in relation to the murder of his wife, Ethel, for much the same reasons Tim Evans had faced only one charge three years earlier. Nine women and three men made up the jury. Lionel Held gave his opening statement, going through the facts of the case as he saw them, Ethel's disappearance, and the excuses for her absence given by Christie, his selling of her jewellery and cashing out her bank accounts, and the discovery of her body. He argued that not only did this circumstantial evidence point clearly towards Christie's guilt, Christie had confessed to the murder of his wife, saying it had been a mercy killing. But of course, even if that was accurate, that's not a defence to murder. To begin with, police evidence was given regarding the layout of 10 Rillington Place and how and where the six bodies were found there. They also outlined Christie's arrest three and a half months after Ethel's disappearance. 
The court also heard about Ethel's last public sighting, dropping off her laundry at the cleaners, and Christie's behaviour after this last sighting, including disinfecting the downstairs of the house. The various statements that Christie gave regarding the bodies found in the house were read aloud for the jury to hear and for the court record. Strikingly, it was not the prosecution who sought to make use of Christie's role in the death of the other women found hidden in the walls and floors of Rillington Place. His own defence team sought to not only link and underline his involvement in the murders of Kathleen, Rita, Hectorina, Ruth and Muriel, but also that of Beryl Evans, whose husband had been hanged for the murder of their infant daughter after they were both found strangled in the very same house. Christie's defence would be that he was guilty of these murders, but he was insane. The court heard what had happened to the three other women found in the house, that they had been poisoned with carbon monoxide, there was evidence of rape, and then the women had been strangled. The collection of pubic hairs found in Christie's flat and who they might belong to was also discussed. A number of medical experts gave evidence regarding Christie's health, both in a general sense and relating specifically to his mental health. First was his GP, Dr. Odess, who outlined his back pain, bouts of intestinal problems, insomnia and nervous disposition. Then Christie's defence proper began. Mr. Curtis Bennett gave a thorough description of the McNaughton Rules, a case from 1843 which established that to be found legally insane in Britain, the accused must show that they did not know the nature or quality of their acts, or that at the time of the act, they did not know that it was wrong. According to his defence counsel, Christie's reasoning or lack thereof for committing these crimes, and his behaviour afterwards, pointed to the action of an insane man who obviously did not know what he was doing. And so John Reginald Halliday Christie took the stand in his own defence, after a fashion. He recalled his early life and his time in the war, including his various injuries, but when he was asked about specifics of the crimes, he said he couldn't recall the details. He admitted his roles in the killings, though, and said he had no real reason for any of the murders. Though he insisted that he didn't know what he was doing when he killed the woman or that it was wrong at the time, when Mr. Held asked Christie directly whether he thought he would have still killed his wife had a policeman been in the same room at the time, Christie admitted that he would not have. Further medical evidence was then presented, this time from a number of psychiatrists that spoke to Christie while he was in prison awaiting trial. The first was called on by the defence, a Dr. Hobson, who said that Christie suffered from hysteria, which was a disease of the mind possibly resulting from Christie's exposure to noxious gas during the First World War. Two further doctors were called as rebuttal witnesses by the Crown. According to these doctors, Christie presented as someone with a weak character and with a particular difficulty in relation to sex and that it may well have been his inability to have sex in the normal fashion which resulted in his committing murder. But both said categorically that this was an abnormal personality trait rather than a disease or defect of the mind that would satisfy the requirements to prove legal insanity. He'd known what he was doing when he killed all those women, 
he'd just had his own strange reasons for doing it. After that, the closing speeches were given, reiterating the position of both the Crown and the defence, and Mr Justice Finmore summed up and gave his instructions. He paid particular attention to the issues relating to the McNaughton rules, and the weight that the jury might give to the expert evidence presented in light of the circumstances and the facts of the case also presented to them. They were to be sure to a degree of reasonable probability whether or not Reg Christie had been suffering from a defect or disease when he killed his wife Ethel, and whether or not he knew at that time that it was wrong. The jury deliberated for one hour and twenty minutes before returning with their verdict. John Reginald Christie was found guilty of the murder of his wife. He was sentenced to death. No appeal was launched against this decision, and it was upheld by the Home Secretary. What did happen in the intervening period between sentencing and Christie's execution was an inquiry into the Evans case. Evidence was presented that, at the time Tim Evans had been hanged for the murder of his daughter, and the presumed murder of his wife, he was living two floors away from a man who had already murdered two women and would go on to murder four more in a very similar manner. There were definitely questions being raised and someone would have to try and answer them. John Scott Henderson, Queen's Counsel, was appointed by the Home Secretary to investigate the possibility that there had been a miscarriage of justice in the Evans case. All the evidence from that case was gone through, and 23 witnesses were called to give further evidence, including Christie himself. Yet again during questioning, Reg Christie had problems remembering what had happened and what his involvement was. He would not say directly one way or another if he had killed Beryl, but he did say outright that he had not killed Geraldine. In the end, the inquiry concluded that there had been evidence supporting Evans' later confessions to the murder of his wife and that no miscarriage of justice had taken place. This was despite the shortcomings in the inquiry itself. For example, the Evanses were, in some cases, not allowed to have their representatives present during part of the hearings, or, in other cases, to put questions to the witnesses whose evidence they did hear. The results of the inquiry were delivered just a day before Christie was to be executed, leaving no time for the report to be considered or the judgment to be delayed for further investigation to take place. And so, at 9am on the 15th of July 1953, Albert Pierpoint accompanied Christie from his cell in Pentonville Prison to the execution chamber. He was hanged there, and the notice of his death was posted on the prison wall shortly after. Oates relates that hundreds of people passed by this notice, and even more continued to visit the property at Rillington Place. It's not a surprise that interest in the case continued in the papers, and that it was the subject of a number of publications. Those who had been involved in the Evans or Christie cases, and the two hangings that had resulted, staunchly defended their positions, and argued that both hangings had been justified and correct. Those campaigning to abolish the death penalty in Britain countered that there had been an innocent man executed, and that this had been a miscarriage of justice. Reform was needed, they said. As the controversy continued, yet another review of the case was commissioned. This was in the wake 
of Ludovic Kennedy's book, Ten Rillington Place, which strongly disagreed with the findings of the report, delivered by Scott Henderson in 1953. This book was integral to the creation of this episode, and in many ways was responsible for the change of narrative relating to Tim Evans' case. In the book, he was cast as a naive, simple-minded man who had been a victim of the cunning Christie. So the controversy over both cases continued both in the political sphere and in the media. In response to the perceived injustices remaining relating to Timothy Evans' murder conviction and the subsequent hanging, Mr Justice Daniel James Brabin, a High Court judge, was appointed to head up a further public inquiry in 1965. His report was published in October of 1966 and has also been relied upon as a main source for this episode. In that inquiry, Mr Justice Brabin heard the testimony of 79 witnesses and went through all of the official documents relating to the cases against both Timothy Evans and Reginald Christie. In the end, Mr Justice Brabin concluded that there was no reason to assume that the person who killed Beryl Evans had also killed Geraldine Evans, and that it was possible and even likely that the two murders were done for very different reasons by different people. He thought that Beryl had likely been killed by her husband in a domestic row over deaths, but that Geraldine had been killed by Christie for other reasons, possibly to avoid having a police search of the property, which might mean the discovery of the bodies already buried out in the garden. That meant, though, that Evans was pardoned for the crime he was hanged for, the murder of his baby daughter, even though he was not cleared entirely from any involvement in the murders officially. Timothy Evans' surviving family, a sister and half-sister, continued to try to have their brother's name entirely cleared of any involvement in either death, though. They were understandably upset that the final report into the matter had cleared Tim in the murder of his child, but had gone on to say he was most certainly involved in the murder of his wife, given the Crown's case at the time, the one that led directly to his death. The whole premise is that the two murders had been connected, that they were so connected that they must have been carried out by the same person. And so the matter was heard again in 2004, in a case brought by Evans's sisters against the Criminal Case Review Commission, after it decided not to refer the case for review in 2003. Evans's sole surviving sister, Mrs Mary Westlake, and the legal team that represented her argued that the Brabham report had left her half-brother's name stained as he'd been declared to have committed Beryl's murder. They wanted the government to say that Tim Evans had been wholly innocent. But Evans had been granted a free pardon for his conviction for murder. There was no conviction relating to Beryl's death, and so nothing that could be done in that regard. Further, there are no provisions in law for a court to make a declaration or a finding of innocence. As it was, in every formal sense, Timothy Evans had been exonerated in relation to both murders, and compensation had been paid to the family a number of years before. In their ruling, the High Court justices also cited the number of books, documentaries and dramatised series that had dealt with the murders committed in Rillington Place. All of them painted Tim Evans in a sympathetic light and clearly showed that John Reginald Christie had been responsible for Beryl's murder, Geraldine's murder 
and the other six murdered women found on the property. With that in mind, the justices thought it unlikely that the public would have the impression that Timothy Evans was guilty of those crimes. There is no question that Sir Richard Attenborough's portrayal of Reg Christie in the 1971 film version of the story convinced audiences that he was a truly terrifying Jekyll and Hyde type character. That film is primarily based on Ludovic Kennedy's book, and he acted as advisor on set. More recently, the BBC made a three-part series called Rillington Place, which again follows a similar storyline. Friend of the show Michael from the Murder Mile podcast has also covered this case extensively in a ten-part series, and that's what's on my agenda to listen to next. His research and archival work is impeccable, and if you want to know more about this story, that's my recommended next stop. Of course, with the controversy surrounding the miscarriage of justice, the hanging of a likely innocent man, and a serial killer who had managed to continue killing despite a police investigation at his place of residence, the victims of the crimes themselves are often forgotten. Most of them, Ruth, Muriel, Kathleen, Rita and Hectorina, were specifically targeted for their vulnerability, something that was made even more acute in the social upheaval that happened in London after the Second World War as a city rebuilding. Christie knew no one would miss them, and manipulated them into trusting this older, kindly, and seemingly knowledgeable man. He told them he could help them, with minor medical ailments, or with ending a pregnancy, or even just having a safe place to sleep at night, and repaid their trust with terrifying violence. But then, if even the police didn't realise that the man in a trilby hat and horn-rimmed glasses was a serial killer, how in the world could they? Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. Don't forget, if you like us, subscribe and leave a review. Or better yet, tell a friend. That really is one of the easiest ways to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. I love hearing from you, so do get in touch. You will make my day. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Kelsey, Laura Bassett, Christina Fitzsimons, Rachel Hale, Rebecca Manners, Rachel Hanlon, and a big thanks to Cindy Ortiz for increasing her pledge. You are all so incredibly generous. Thank you so much, guys. Patrons get ad-free and early release episodes, as well as bonus content and nifty merch. There's something for everyone, so do check it out. Also, a huge thank you to this week's sponsor, HelloFresh. Remember to head to hellofresh.co.uk and enter the code MENSREA at checkout to get £60 off. That's M-E-N-S-R-E-A at checkout to get your £60 off. Supporting our sponsors also supports this show and keeps the episodes coming. So show them some love and get an awesome discount while you're at it. Our theme music is Quinsong, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.